Good morning. How are you? Good, excellent, and tired. All right. So I am. Um, I'm with tired. Just for the record, I uh, I don't know why. Hey, before we get into it, so first Isaiah 58. If you have a Bible, or uh, if you brought one, uh, if you're on our Bible app in the church, as Nicole was talking about earlier, um, turn to Isaiah chapter 58. Um, if, like Nicole said, if you use our Bible app in, that's built, if you use our church app that has the ESV Bible built into it, when you get to the ESV, it'll ask you if you want to log in. Now, that's separate from us. That's directly to ESV the, or Crossway, the publisher. And they'll give you a free account. When you log in, it'll do all kinds of fun things. You can take notes. You can highlight. You can actually have the app read you the Bible. Uh, sometimes it's good just to listen while you read. gives you kind of two ways to focus. Um, but by all means, please do that. And uh, if you have that with you, we're on Isaiah 58. So... Real quick, just kind of a coronavirus update. It's been a weird week for me. Uh, early in the week, I got a call from Joe and Chanel, and with Chanel's permission, I get to share this story. None of us care what Joe thinks, really, right? So as long as Chanel's on board, we're good, right? So uh, I get a call early in the week, and uh, this has been a good month for birthdays, right? Joe and me and Brooks was yesterday? Yeah. Laura's, I mean, like, there's... June is all the cool people. I'm just, I'm just saying, like, June's all the cool people for sure. So uh, in that, with some birthday stuff and some barbecues and things like that, what we found out was that Joe and Chanel had been exposed to a friend uh, who has tested positive for coronavirus. And so in a phone call with me, man, we just like, okay, let's, let's just keep you out of the office. Let's kind of hold back. And so both of them tested this week and were tested negative. So that's hugely great news, right? Um, and so, but we just reminded that people are ramping up. I got two more messages this week of direct contact with people that are now testing positive. And so call it what you want. Call it opening up the economy, call it protests, call it rallies, call it church, call it whatever you want to do. Um, we had a record high test positive this week. Over 4,200 people in California tested positive on Wednesday. So we encourage you, stay home and live stream. If you're vulnerable, if you're at risk, if you're uncomfortable, by all means, stay at home and live stream. If you're here and you're in this room, uh, we wear masks here and we're trying to be safe. Um, and, and so just as California made that kind of statewide public, you know, when you're outside doing things, wear a mask. Um, just remember for us, it's not theory. For us, it's been people, you know, person after person after person who have tested positive or have relatives that have tested positive. We've had all kinds of amazing stories uh, of this, and fortunately, many people have gotten better. And so uh, a few losses, and, and we mourn every one of them, but it's been a reality for us. And so again, this week, there are people that have been coming to church that will not be coming to church today because of this. And so just a constant reminder for us, whether you think this thing is dangerous or not dangerous, or where you are on the spectrum, uh, there's a variety of opinions for sure, um, and I think we should be back working. I think it's hard to miss church for a long time, but we're encouraging you, live stream at home, uh, if for any reason you want to be at home. So we love you. Otherwise, here we are. So Isaiah, as we enter the back end of Isaiah, as we get to the final several chapters, the final 11 chapters, God shifts his message. He's been speaking to the people, calling out the sin in the people of God. 
So we'll talk a lot about the church today as the people of God. Fast forward to today, that's what we're talking about back then. We're talking about the people, particularly in Judah, that God is speaking to through Isaiah, his prophet. And he's been calling out the people for their sin. Simple way of looking at this is that the people of God looked more like the people of the world than the people of God. They looked more like the nations around them than they did a separate nation. And so I don't want to think today in terms of nationhood. I don't want to think in terms of being an American, but rather being a Christian in America. And so when I talk about Christians, I'm limiting it really to Christians in America. Um, being a Christian in Africa or in Asia today is a different context than being a Christian in the West. And so for us, as we talk about Christians, that's what we're talking about. We talk about the people of God then or the people of God now. We're talking about one group of people spread out over time who have had some consistent issues, right? That we struggle with some very similar things. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, right? There's no new sins out there. We just try and create new inventive ways to do them, right? And so, again, we struggle with the same things. We struggle with looking more like the world around us than looking like God's children. So kind of a main idea today for following along, the church in action. As Christians, we struggle to live our faith. We have wrongly viewed our faith as personal, meaning just between God and ourselves. God calls us to be a corporate body of faith and to make an impact on the world. God calls us to be a corporate body of faith that makes an impact on the world. A particularly American problem is that we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. We talk about how I, me and Jesus, are, how we're good. We don't need the church or we don't need others. It's just this personal faith. God doesn't really speak in those terms. He calls us individually, but he calls us to be a part of a corporate body what we call the church, what Jesus called the church. And he does so that we might make an impact in the world around us. So as, Matthew, or as Genesis says, uh, as Moses says in Genesis, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So listen to this. God speaking to an individual, that's where we get our personal component, speaking to him about what, will, what it will look like when Abraham follows God. He says, and I will make of you a great nation. Now I will make you a part of a corporate body. I will bless you and make your name great. Here's what I will do. If you are obedient to me, here's what I will do to you, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing. Here's the outward focus, right? And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that's loaded with lots of things. There were people in Abraham's day that were blessed because of who he was. Lot is a good example of one, his nephew, right? Others were blessed around him. Nations were blessed around him as he was faithful to God. But also, this is ripe with messianic promise that the world, through you, the world will come a savior. Through you will be born Jesus. Through a people of faith that will bring Jesus, Jesus will bless the entire world. And so when we hear this, we, we understand that there's local, current, modern implication of who we will bless. And as we wrap up the message today, we'll talk about being a blessing to next generations. And so we'll park there, we'll pray, and we will open up Isaiah 58. Will you guys join me as we pray?
Jesus, as we gather, we gather because of you. I say that, Jesus, because you reached out to first. It says, while we were yet still enemies of God, you loved us. While we were still in our sin and running away from you, Jesus, you were reaching out to us. You move first, we just respond. And that is the gospel message, that you transform us, we then respond as a response out of gratefulness, out of thanksgiving to you, we respond in obedience. And so today, we seek to hear your word and our hope and our goal and our next step is that we will respond. So Jesus, will you come, will you speak to us today, your church? Let me fade out of the way. Let me take the background, Lord. And will you come and will you speak to us as your church? We, we need you. We need your voice. We need your life. And so, Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 58 starts in verse 1, says this, Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. So this is God speaking to Isaiah, his prophet, and as a prophet, he is to speak God's word with God's authority primarily to God's people. 90 plus percent of the time, God's prophets speak to God's people. I'd love to say it's 99% of the time, but I haven't done the math to actually figure that out, but it's almost always a prophet of God speaking God's word with God's authority to God's people. I know there are exceptions. Jonah is an exception, right? Most of the time, it's to the people in the room, right? It's to us. And as we hear God's word today, what is important is that we don't talk about what they aren't doing. But what we do is we talk about what we aren't doing. We talk about what God has done for us and how we respond to that, not what God is calling the world to do or what the sin of the world is. Too many churches hear the hear the word of God and want to kind of implement that on other folks that don't know him. See, for the rest of the world, we want them to know Jesus. And for those of us who profess to know Jesus, we want to know how to live in response to the gospel, right? The gospel is that, that very simple, in essence, but, but profound and implication message, that good news that God created you and loves you. You're not a mistake. You're not an accident. You're not some random chance of science, but God created you. And because God created you, you have a design. Your design is to be a worshiper of God. And that doesn't mean just to stand and sing in church, but that means that our lives bring glory to God. That's how we worship God, by what we do, not just what we believe, not just what we say, but what we do. And so all of us have failed that. All of us have fallen short. Romans is really clear for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? From Adam on down, from our ancient, 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 ancient father on this wonderful Father's Day, we inherited sin, right? And so thanks, Dad, uh, Adam, right? You know, and uh, like that's, we, we have, right? And that means, and just as we even celebrate Father's Day, we know all of us, male or female, father or son, we're all flawed, right? Parenting is probably the thing that will show you your flaws the greatest, right? You see your kids and you see them do something, you realize, like, they got that from me, right? 
We all know we're sinful. We all know we're broken. In fact, if you're joining us today, if you're a guest, or if you're a guest online, which is highly likely, we have guests there. First off, again, let me repeat what Nicole says. Please check in, comment, let us know you're there. We want to connect with you. We'd love to send you a gift, but we just want to be a church to you. But if you're hearing this today, let me say this. We know most of all how flawed we are. We're not that church that pretends we have it all together. And if, in fact, if we do that, we need to repent of that too, right? That we know we're broken. We know we're sinful. We, the more we know, the more sinful we figure out we are, right? But we're not left in that sin, but that God created us, designed us, and we've broken the design. But in that God, out of grace, out of benevolence, out of goodness, out of kindness, out of love and out of mercy, sends Jesus to be our justice, that he will come and live the life we are called to live and then die the death we deserve, that he will do so that we can return once again sinful humanity covered by his blood to a holy God, that we will be able to return into that relationship like a marriage that has been severed by pain and infidelity and sin, we are, we are brought back into a redeemed relationship. And so much of Christianity kind of parks there. Right? Much of us kind of sit in that space where we're, we're reconciled to God. And so we show up to church, or we give financially, or we serve somewhere, or we do something. But really God says, no, I want you to be a new people. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about that, that we take whoever we are and we sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus and profess to be Christians. And God would say, no, I want to remake you completely. And so in that, Jesus dies for our sins, is buried to cover our shame and our sin and our burden, and is risen from the dead to give us a new life. Without the resurrection, we have new life. So Jesus then goes on to back, ascend back to heaven where he belongs, God on the throne, and he pours out his spirit. He empowers us to live for him. So it's in that peace, it's in the resurrection and new life and in the empowering by his spirit while we wait for his return that we are called to act. Matthew 8, 3, 8 says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, repentance isn't something we do when we hear the gospel and we realize, oh, I've sinned, I'm going to repent of my sin and turn to God, and then repentance stops. Repentance is ongoing. Sin is that onion that you keep peeling back layer after layer. It's that thing that as you learn more, you grow in the knowledge of how much more broken you are. And that should not be discouraging to any of us. We're getting deeper into the things that are broken. So Jesus calls us onward always to repent. We have faithful people even here now that have been longtime parts of the church, that have been Christians for longer than I've been alive. I won't be able to say that much longer. I will outlive that generation, you know what I mean? But, uh, but have been Christians, literally, for longer than the 51 years I've been alive. And, and they have not attained, and I have not attained, or we have not attained a space where we have stopped repenting. Now, we can... We can get to a place where we stop repenting. That doesn't mean that there's not sin to repent of. That we are forever finding out how we can press into God. And it's not how near we are. It's are we continually pointed towards Christ. So verse 2, lots of introduction in verse 1. Here's verse 2. Yet they seek me daily to delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. 
They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Now, this is a confusing sentence. It takes a minute to unpack it together. It says things like, they seek me daily. The same they, the people of God, delight to know my ways. Right? They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Sounds like the people of God are on the right track for once. 58 chapters in, we've been waiting for this moment. Are they on the right page? No, but here's what he says. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. Here's the problem, and here's the setup for the people today. And here's where we can relate to ourselves today. These are people that are praying and fasting. They are carving out a day to fast. Now, fasting is simple. It is, let me rephrase that, it is explained simply. Clearly, not an expert. So, uh, just for the record. All right, so, fasting is denying yourself something physical. Food is the normal example. But it's denying yourself something physical so that you can press into something spiritual. It's denying yourself something human so you can press into God. It reminds us that we are weak and in need of God, and it, and it causes us to derive our strength and our direction and our life from God. So, I know that, you know, a hundred and something people are going through Rooted right now, and there was a day of fasting leading into a night of prayer that we did as small groups on Zoom. And in fact, it was the one thing that I thought, this isn't going to go exactly as planned because we were digital, right? Because we were, it was like four or five weeks after Easter. So it's, it, it was beginning of May. And I thought, it isn't going to go well. And it really, it really went well. It went well with my, with my high school students. It was, we had a great time. I thought it was powerful. The next night I did it with adults and they were okay. I mean, they're all right, but, but it was powerful. We got to get together, right, and pray, and it actually went really well that our time praying, even from distance, over cameras and computers and phones, it went really well. But it was the first time that many people had ever fasted, and it was really kind of a first time that people had taken an hour or two of guided prayers, probably 90 minutes to two hours of guided prayer together, some alone, some together, some in small groups, some in whole groups. And so when I say that, understand that when I, when I look at the landscape of Generations Church today, because really this is all, all we have for today, I'm not talking about the church down the street, and I'm not talking about the Buddhists around the corner or the Mormons up here, I'm talking about us. This is typical in the American church, but I have to talk about us. Here's what I know for sure. Most of us don't fast and pray regularly. Most of us don't carve out a day or more to deny ourselves physical things in order to press into God. So hear me when I say this. The church needs to hear this more than the people Isaiah is speaking to. Because whom he's speaking to are people that are fasting and are praying and are seeking God. It says that they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. But here's what he says, and he pivots in the middle of the sentence, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. So here's what he's saying. You are taking that personal component of me and you. You're praying, you're fasting, 
You're asking for direction, but I've given you direction, and you're not doing what I've already told you to do. So I'll give you this note on screen. So calling people to action. People often believe that they are godly by inwardly seeking God in prayer and fasting, but not outwardly living God's commands and obedience. God calls people to act. We should hear that as a church because we lack both. Fair? Fair? Online folks, I can't see you, but I'm pretty sure this resonates, right? Not only do we not do the spiritual disciplines part very well, we also don't act very well. So he's calling out the people who do fast and pray, who are seeking God. But he's making the point, you're asking me for direction. You're telling me, speak to me. Will you guide us? Will you tell us what we're to do next? Tell us, God, speak to us. And he's saying, I would, except you don't listen. The last time I told you to do something, you still haven't done it, right? And there's a problem with that. As soon as we wrap up Rooted, our groups are going to do something new. And there is a drive. And I'm saying this is wrong. I'm saying this is true. There was a lot of people. I got some emails. I had some in-person conversations. People want to get back to a study of a book of the Bible, either sermon-based, small groups, or do a book study like Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians. Do something, right? And as I prepare for this, my heart cries out like, but when do we start doing all the things we've learned? Like, when do we start living out the last book study we did and this one? And that's an indictment on all of us, not just some of us. There's a desire, American, Western Christians, there's a desire to learn. But it seems to get trapped up here and doesn't make it down to our heart. And when it does, it never seems to emanate out our hands and our feet. And yet we want more. So what do we do with this? We begin to act. I would never say stop learning. I would just say start doing. Let's start acting on the things we know. So let's take that, and let's apply that to ourselves today, and let's see what is God saying. So verse 3, why have we fasted and you see it not? God is saying, like, that's their words. Why have we humbled ourselves? That word humbled, by the way, doesn't translate into English as strongly as it should. It's like they are um, oppressing themselves on behalf of God. It's like uh, they are not just humbled, but they are punishing themselves in a sense. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, God responds, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. So here's what they're doing. They're coming in. They're good Christians. I know they're Jewish. Work with me, right? They're good Christians. They're going to church. They're fasting and praying. They're taking a Sabbath. They're doing the things, all the things we struggle to even do. They're living them out. So they're doing that and they're seeking God. But when they do that and they seek God and God says, listen, I want you to care for the people around you. Now let's just put a pin in that. And I'll pick the rest of that sentence up in a minute, but let's just look at it this way. What have we talked about over the last three weeks, right? We've talked about justice in the general sense, that you can't answer wrongdoing with wrongdoing, right? That violence does not beget violence or that's not the solution. Two weeks ago, we talked about the oppression of black, young black men in America. You can love it or hate it, but we see it over and over again. We watch as there is a single group that is singled out more than others. 
Hispanics don't feel the same way that I've talked to. Asians don't feel the same way. And clearly, white people don't feel the same way. That there is a unique group of people that feel a disproportionate problem to them. And if anything we see on the news is true, that's true. We all know we watched the death of a man at the hands of someone else, in this case, a cop. Just before that, at the hands of two other people. We've watched as this takes place, and God has called us to stand up against injustice. That doesn't mean that's the only injustice in the world. It just means it's unjust, right? You don't have to tell me, but all life, but this, but blue life. You don't have to tell me that we stand up against all injustice. But when we see a consistent theme to injustice, what do we do? I spent a couple days ago, Friday morning, Thursday and Friday, most of Friday morning studying uh, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Uh, to read this and, and recognize what many of you don't know is it's written to white pastors. In that moment, 60 years ago, 50 years ago, he's writing to white pastors talking about white Christian complacency. The things that the it's, it's like a book of the Bible that, like when you get 1 Corinthians and it tells you that Paul's already received a letter from them and he's answering some things. It's kind of like that. He received a letter, Martin Luther King received a letter, and he's responding to it. And the things he responds to, you get to kind of read into, oh, I get what they said, okay? And the things that they said could be, are, are the things that are being said today. If it doesn't shock you that we have the same words and the same response today as we did in the civil rights movement, then you should soften your heart a bit to this issue. Last week, we talked about abortion. We talked about mixing false worship with worship of God. We likened the racial thing to our call towards orphans and vulnerable children. We talked about the foster care system, right? Another people group that are oppressed. And, and, and our likeness was, just like with foster care kids, we don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to fix racial injustice, but I want to learn. I want to learn how we, as a church, not them, we can take steps to bring healing. So here's God. You're fasting. You're praying. I've told you these things, but you don't do them. And now again, you're fasting and praying, and you're asking for me to speak more. Like that parenting moment where you're like, I've already told you the answer. When will you go do it? That's what God is saying. You're fasting. You're doing this. You're doing that. You're not doing what I asked you to do, though. Right? Here's a quote from Ray Ortland, uh, a, a guy I know and a guy I read a lot of. He is super, super smart, and he writes a commentary on Isaiah. He says, we can't compensate for neglect in one area of life by observance in another especially when fasting is less demanding than labor-intensive involvement with needy people. We can't offset our deficit here and compensate here, especially when the thing we compensate with is easier than rolling up your sleeves, getting your hands dirty with problems, with people, with needs. Verse 5, it says, "...is such a fast, is such the fast that I choose." A day for a person to humble himself. And again, that humble word isn't really strong enough. Read in that almost like punish. Is it to bow down his head like a reed and spread sackcloth 
and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? So if we just ask the question, how many of us regularly fast? And you don't have to raise your hands. You don't have to raise your hands at home, although no one would see you, so it's okay, I guess. Right? How much of us regularly fast? How much of us spend days in prayer? Days in, I don't mean the whole 24 hours. I mean like days focused on giving time to prayer. Even if you just took the 20 minutes you eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, and just took, that's another hour you could give to God, right? Get away that snacking time, which would kill me. That's most of my day, right? So give that time to prayer, right? Give that time to caring for people, worshiping, doing those things. He says, how many, he says, you're doing this. But if we just ask ourselves, how many of us are doing that? It's not a lot, right? So then if God doesn't hear the prayers of the people who fast and pray, how much more seriously should we take this passage when we are not obedient, when we don't do what he's called us to do? Now, just as a side note, there's a group of people, some of them are here right now, that are taking the lead on our next steps into foster care, right? We believe that the call to widows and orphans, that we should care for the vulnerable, care for the weak, care for the oppressed, care for those in need, that that modern-day translation is single parents, and foster kids. And so we have people that are even here right now that are helping us put together how we're going to take next steps. They've honed it down between the three major areas that you can, that you can uh, kind of serve in, right? And they've narrowed it down to one we think we're most suited to, knowing that we can help out in the other two. They're crafting what kind of, kind of what they want to do and how we want to wrap around it. And we're going to take that to the elders who are already on board but want to hear from this, like, hey, what are we going to do? How do what do we need? How do we do this, right? And so we're taking steps. We spent the last six, seven months learning. Will we give that kind of time to another oppression, to another vulnerable group? Will we give that kind of effort and learning? Or when the news cycle dies down, will we forget? That's what God is calling us to do. Listen, will you do what I've asked you to do? So caring for people. God places a great emphasis on how we treat others as a part of our faith. We wrongly see our personal devotion as a measurement of piety or holiness or faith, right? God uses prayer and fasting to empower us to act and obedience as a measure of faith, right? That's the contrast between Paul and James. Contrast, not conflict, right? One is saying we're saved by grace through faith, Two good works, Paul says, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10, right? James says, you say you have faith, I'll show you my faith by how I live. I will show you my faith by what I do. The New Testament is incredibly cohesive with this. And yet we hear this and we rightly emphasize grace. We rightly emphasize faith. And then we mumble through the part about works. Verse 6, is, not this, is this not the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. That's a powerful verse. Is not this the fast that I choose? Now remember, we don't do, almost never do we do topical series here. Rarely, we began this year with one, talking about the things God has given us to use for his glory, for his church, for his works, for his ministry, right? We started the year there. But we spent almost all of last year, and, and we will spend probably half of this year finishing Isaiah. All of last year, several months this year. 
We teach through books of the Bible. That is a conviction I've had since I was young and early in ministry. Whole books, verse by verse, whole thing. So what you're not getting is some social justice uh, teaching series that is cherry-picking things. We're walking passage by passage by passage through Isaiah, and God's not letting up on the topic. So shoot the messenger all you want. God continues to remind us, this is my cause. You fill in the oppressed people group you want to. Again, we talked about abortion last week. Let's fill in that part of it. We can do more than one thing. We are complex beings that can do more than one thing at at a time. And God is calling us to do all of it, figure out how to be a part of all of it. And that doesn't mean run headlong ignorantly into things. It means figure out what your next step is. Learn. I had a good friend, uh, amazing leader, Doug Logan, Dr. Doug Logan Jr., who was asked to testify on the Senate floor this week. I posted uh, his, well, I posted the entire five hours of the C-SPAN thing, which no one watches, but a couple clips and his PDF, right? And I know as soon as people click on something and it's longer than two minutes, they stop listening. I got it. I get it. It's not for Facebook, right? But I listened as Doug Logan testified on the Senate floor, and he was able to walk through this issue. The Senate hearing was about police violence. And he was to walk through this, and he spoke. He's a black pastor. He's also a president of a seminary, and and, and part of a leads helps us lead Acts 29. But he worked his way through what it looked like to grow up in the urban poor, what it looked like to pastor a black church in Camden, New Jersey, and what had happened when they had a murder on their front steps on a Saturday night, and what it felt like to preach on Sunday morning when the tape and the blood and the stuff was still out front. And their church moved outside to pray and weep around that. And because of his actions, because of what he did, mayors and and police departments and people began to include him in the conversation. And so he testifies in front of the Senate. He doesn't bash police. He doesn't talk about defunding the police, but he definitely talked about reforms. He definitely said, hey, listen, we're asking cops to do a lot of things, wear a lot of hats, do a lot of different jobs, all at the end of one phone call, be it a 911 or whatever. And he threaded through that without being disrespectful to one side, but honoring kind of where he comes from and talking about oppression and offering solutions on how we could take steps further. And he lives it. We're not making this up. This is Isaiah's message to the people. When you hear this, how can you not live in this day and hear what we hear? Verse 6, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house? You see the naked, cover him, and not to hide yourself from their own flesh. It's not just about racism, or it's about homelessness and hunger. It's about the things in the world that we can reach out and touch. And saying that's all of our job. Collectively, we're to meet all those needs. And again, we stop. And here's the number one thing I've heard around the topic of race in America lately. And it's come from kids. It's come from adults. It's like, we're just too small. How do we, how do, we do this? I don't have a good answer for that. 
Except we've got to stop thinking that we are too small. We are the people God has chosen to act. We are the people God has called to act. To act for foster care, to act for homelessness, which we don't do a whole lot about, to act for hunger, we don't do a ton about, to care for people in need, we do some, to care for racial things, to care for this, to care for for the unborn, we don't do really anything with that either. Like we're called to act. How are we going to act? We don't know yet. But there's no more time for sitting on the sidelines and saying we're too small. So devotion without action. Our faith doesn't cause us to make our world a better place. If our faith doesn't cause us to make our world a better place, we miss the work that God has called us to do. God empowers the gospel, us and the gospel to participate in restoring the world. After all this, after this indictment of, listen, you've made this whole devotional life your whole life, and I'm calling you to go out and act, and I've quit talking to you because really you quit listening, and I'm not going to say anything else because you haven't done the last thing I said. After all of that, God gives them the opportunity, right? In Christ, we always have the, re- the opportunity, the path back to return. No matter what we're doing wrong, no matter how far from God are, there's always the path back. The gospel is always the path back. It's the path back for the believer who's wandered away. It's the path back for the believer who didn't know. It's the path back for the non-believer who's been running from Jesus. It's always the path back. The gospel is not just the thing that introduces us to Jesus. It's the very power to save and to keep us. It is the very power we stand in every day. It's the very power that we place our trust and our hope in that we will one day stand before God justified, sanctified, and glorified. That's the gospel, and it's for all of us. So now he pivots in the gospel and says, now when you return, here's what it'll look like. Verse 8, then shall your, that's the then, when you come back, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of God shall be your rear guard. I will be with you when you begin to act. When you listen and return to me, when you take your first step, I'll be your rear guard. I'll I'll cover you. Your light will shine forth. Verse 9, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and spreading wickedness. When you return, when you repent, when you come back, when you lay down whatever's in the way between you and living the way God has called you to live. He says, then I hear your prayers. Then you cry and I say, here I am. Then you move and I go with you. So let's take some application for this. So what happens when we do this? So the first one, God will hear your prayers. When we do what God calls us to do, he continues to speak to us. Why would God speak when we haven't listened to what he said already? God's desire is to speak, but not to those who don't listen. Our application begin listening. Doug Logan used the example. He used the three words, uh, listen, learn, and then legislate. He said to the Senate, will you please listen? Will you learn? And not until that's done, then will you legislate? I think most of us have a critique of Congress, of the Senate, that they will legislate on problems really quickly. Some of them don't even address the problem, right? They'll ban this kind of gun when it wasn't used in the last 25 shootings. Or they'll do this and they'll say, well, I don't even know. Maybe I'm missing something. But maybe a chokehold was used recently. But it seems like it's been years since that was the thing. And yet that's the conversation. Like, well, what about 
something that's actually relevant right now. And I think that's his calling. Maybe I've got some details wrong, fine. His calling is listen and learn, and then, then act. Will we listen, will we learn, and will we act? Verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually, satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong. And you should be like a watering garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Right? I will restore you. When you're dry ground and your bones are broke, I will restore you. I think that just reminds me of the Psalm 51 language of restore the bones that you have broken, that, that feeling of I am undone. Verse 12, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise the, up the foundations of many generations. Right? Remember we said we get here? And you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. We get to become restorers, right? We are called generations for this reason, that we stand on the generations that came before us. Some of the people I mentioned earlier that have been around, have been doing this thing for longer than I've been alive. We stand on their shoulders. It was their income that brought the property we sold so we could pay cash for this one. We stand on their shoulders. But our job is not to do that, it's not just to stay there, but it's to reach the next generation. Believe me, they're not here because they love our music. Right? Right? Jim's back there like, yeah, man. They're here because we're reaching the next generation. They're here because their kids and their grandkids will attend church. We will be a blessing to the next generation. My job is to be the go-between between the generation before me and the next generation. And your job is the same. Even if you're the next generation, you then reach the next one. Right? Restoration of all that we have lost. When we participate in caring for those in need, God honors our obedience by restoring and rebuilding the world that sin is destroyed. We imitate the gospel by helping heal broken lives, right? The gospel is God healing our broken life. We imitate that gospel when we go and participate in restoring and healing broken lives. Homeless, hungry, in need of a family, in need of justice, whatever it might be. We participate, we imitate the gospel. When we imitate the gospel by helping heal broken lives, God uses us to restore the next generations, plural. Verse 13, we'll close with this. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's Isaiah mic dropping it back before there are microphones, right? The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's where he finishes. He says, if you will keep the Sabbath, this has been an ongoing theme as well, that you don't trust me enough. If you don't take a day to be with God and family and church and things like that, it doesn't have to be Sunday. It's not always been Sunday. But if you don't take a day and find a way to work in six and give one to God, you don't trust God. You don't think God's big enough for your problems. And you don't trust him to meet your needs. And a lot of us have experienced that in this whole crazy coronavirus world. We got flooded with things to do, and then we were limited in the ways we could do them. But do we really trust God to meet our needs? And if we don't trust God to meet our needs... How can we trust God to meet others' needs? Let's pray.
Jesus, we love you. You are the one that came to meet our needs. You are the one. You are the one who hadn't sinned. You are the one who has never sinned. You are the one who came and brought sinlessness into humanity. And then you gave your life so the rest of us as sinful humanity could be restored and redeemed. And then you have called us to walk as you did, to care as you did, to care as you do for those who are in need. Let us find godly responses to worldly needs, Lord. Let us find actions that fit our faith. Let us find obedience that directly corresponds to your commands. Help us to listen, to learn, and then in our case, to act. Jesus, we love you. We're here because of you. We can't do this without you. And so we pray these things in your name. Amen.